0: Everyone doing Marco Gambino here, another episode of Conspiracy Corner. Question everything. So I've got a massive, massive 2 part here. Um, there's so much shit. Like legit, I was supposed to be releasing something obviously back towards like Christmas time before, and uh ended up sending myself down like a Da Vinci Code style rabbit hole. Like there is so much fucking madness that comes off that just one question. All I wanted to know was what was going on. With that whole thing about the Queen's picnic that everyone was talking about in lockdown, and I've ended up down some rabbit hole, which has taken me to the Vatican cults, Vatican assassins. Now I found things about secret gospels, and it's fucking mental. Um, what I'm going to touch on in this one is uh, so to open up, obviously, for that Queen's picnic thing, I'm just going to set the scene so you guys can see what had been put in place to allow something like that to happen. And then we can go into the basis of the accusation later on. So um, I want you to check, check this place, check this website out as well, and check this guy out. Kevin Annette is, is a fucking hero, absolutely fucking hero. Um, the, the website's called murderbydecree.com. Um, it's based about the genocide of Native American people in, um, in Canada and it's it's fucking insane so i'm going to jump straight into it yeah let's just fucking fly into this so um as a first point call i'm just going to say uh rest in peace to um the seven fallen aboriginal leaders of this movement who uh, died of probable foul play and um, after naming killers of children and leading protests and occupations at the Roman Catholic, Anglican and United Churches of Canada. So first, Virginia, Virginia Baptiste, who died suddenly uh, on January 29th, 2004, of unstated causes while in hospital. Louis Daniels, who died suddenly February 4th, 2006, of unstated causes while in hospital. Harriet Nahany. Uh, died February 24th, 2007, shortly after a release in prison. Johnny Bingo Dawson, uh, died December 6th, 2009, after being beaten to death by police. Uh, William Arnold Coombs, uh, the... Sorry, I can't speak. Uh, Who died February 26th, 2011, after a lethal injection in St. Paul's Hospital. That one's super interesting because he was one of the ones who... um, Kevin tried to bring to England to speak about the Queen's case in particular. So that one I'm going to be touching on on part two. Uh, Ricky Ricky Laverley, uh, who died January 23, 2012, after severe blows to the head and chest. And Harry Wilson, who died uh, April 4th, 2013, know, of unknown causes. Rest in peace um, to all of those people. And uh, this is it's awful. It's awful. Right. Um, also as well, just a little note from uh, from them on this report. We urge the public to read the report alongside Kevin Annette's latest book Unrelenting Between Sodom and Zion uh, which gives a stirring personal account of the two decades of history of this movement and that's just the movement that's not of the crime the crime went on from the 1800s through to the fucking 19- like it's oh god um (laughs) so yeah so this this report uh has been issued by the international tribunal for the disappeared of canada uh, an international coalition of jurists and human rights groups formed in december 2015 to investigate the disappearance of people in canada and to prosecute those responsible Uh, the tribunal arose due to continued efforts by the canadian government to obstruct and subvert justice by concealing and falsifying the truth of genocide of native people in canada both past and present a genuine non-governmental inquiry has been operating in Canada since February of 1998. Uh, the Truth Commission into Genocide in Canada, TCGC, and its subsequent offshoots. And these guys are they are basically a grassroots self-supporting network of native and non-native people. And uh, they've been fighting everything to make sure that they can document and make public all of these crimes that were committed by the church, by the, the state, by the crown. It's mad. Um... And yeah, they want to make sure that they can make true and uh, make the true and uncensored story of the genocidal massacre known as the Indian residential school system. The fact that they played it off as a school is ah, you're gonna yeah. If if I would say discretion advice, if you if you if you struggle to listen to stories and accounts about children being killed, I'd turn this off because this stuff's dark, man. Real fucking dark. Um, so yeah. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, was deliberately established by church and state in response to the TCGC's independent inquiry and public protests, in order to sabotage and diffuse the tremendous impact this movement has had since spring of 1998. So the um, the TRC uh, that was started by the Canadian government to basically that they they were holding. It's literally like even even if I read out this now, uh, which is one of their, which is from section 2, um, the establishment powers duties and procedures of the commission uh, from so the actual roles of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is the government's version. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission shall not hold formal hearings, nor act as a public inquiry, nor conduct a formal legal process, shall not possess subpoena powers, and does not have powers to compel attendance or participation in any of its activities or events. And calling yourself the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's like, just off the bat, it's not even like they were trying to hide that they were going to try and cover shit up. It's literally going, yeah, okay, cool. We've made this to acknowledge that we did some bad shit, but we don't want anyone to be able to actually say anything about it. Like... Uh, um uh, it shall not make any findings or express any conclusion or recommendation regarding the misconduct of any person or the possible civil or criminal liability of any person or organisation. They shall not name names in their events, activities, public statements, report or recommendations or make use of pub- personal information or of statements made which identify a person. The commissioners shall not record the names of persons so identified. And you're calling yourself the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. right? Like, it's mental. So, is it... Like obviously, Kevin and that they have pointed out in this in this um, report, obviously these guys, the TRC, they were put together and established to counteract what they were trying to do as the TCGC. And uh, further on into the actual report, I will put in a, a link to it in the description so you guys can have a look and download it yourselves because it is a it's a long read, but it's a it's it needs to be done. Like this is this is disgusting. Like the the whole way that. This the, the whole this whole like a, like a hundred years of, of children just being systematically killed, systematically raped, trafficked. It's oh god. So um, check out the document. The document's got a full timeline of all the events that goes the whole way through. Um, I've paraphrased a lot of stuff. Tried to keep the the, the main gist of everything in it um, because obviously I don't want to take away. From uh, the people that are actually doing stuff to help. this end of the day. I just do a fucking podcast. You know what I mean? Like, I do this for fun. So um, make sure you check them out. Uh, there's a lot of books and a lot of witness statements on this on this issue. So make sure you check out their stuff. murderbydecree.com, have, have a look. So yeah. So let's uh, talking about uh, back of the TRC stuff. And um, with the with protests and uh, with public forums and all the. Um, And getting witnesses in to make witness statements and stuff. What they were doing is they were speaking to people that were um, that were obviously reporting that they'd been abused and da da da. And then they were bringing them to these TRC-based events. Do not mistake them for the TCGC. TCGC are the good guys, Um, and they were basically putting them up there to hush down the story, to minimise it, and make it look like it was just a mishandled, like a mishandled system rather than the systematic genocide of um of thousands and thousands and thousands of people and uh the there's there's a lot there are a lot of witness statements and and um and accounts on the report of people saying about how they were they were silenced at um at their the trc events how they were threatened at the trc events um people that said names Sit like, magically disappeared not long after like it. It's fucking mental. So um, have a look at them I'm just gonna go into the crime uh, How it led the history behind it because it's a setup for obviously going into the Queen stuff later on um, to set the scene for how this sort of stuff was actually possible so um So, yeah, heading on to the crime. Uh, So, yeah, so the crime to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Papal bull uh, Romanus pontifex that authorised the conquest of genocide of the non-Catholic world back in 1455. When you go into... Uh, like tradition and stuff like this is about me and about how I've gone down this mad Da Vinci Code like rabbit hole. Because a lot when you look at the stuff that's happening now, you can't scream out, um, "Oh, everyone's a Satanist and they're sacrificing children and da 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 da" without understanding the background, because other, otherwise, obviously, normal people are going to hear you and go, "But why?" And that's the problem. It, it's difficult to establish a why in modern day without seeing a history of tradition. And uh, that's one of the main things that I want to run into on this, is is how far back these kind of behaviors run, and the uh, the systematic, well, it was systematic, yeah, probably, yeah, fuck it, we'll use that word. The, the, um, the systematic indoctrination of these people who are part of um, these societies, and part of these groups, and part of uh, these basically fucking cults that, genuinely believe that they are above everybody else and when you see how far back it is and the tactics that they've used and the strategies that they use none of them change so when you've seen a lot of the stuff that they're doing um that they did in roman times that we're going to go over later uh you can look back in history and see how much of it has been done recently like within the last hundred years especially in this um so, yeah, there's another quote from Raphael Lemkin, uh, who wrote a book on uh, Axis Rules in Occupied Europe. Genocide does not necessarily mean the immediate destruction of an entire nation. It is rather a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the group themselves. This is super interesting because when it goes, because obviously he wrote the book about obviously Axis rule, occupied Europe, and obviously the Nazis. When you think about genocide, you think Nazis, you think Rwanda, and we what we don't talk about as much is what the basis of America even is. America is a country born on genocide, and a lot of a lot of the spread of um, obviously the 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 kind of opinion that we are the good guys depends on a lot of the the weird language and things that have been used that make things like colonization and then make things like going over and conquering somewhere not appear to be a form of genocide the um the theft of people's traditions cultures the destruction of their their children's independence to then reform a whole new generation this is the stuff that this goes into so it, it oh god it's crazy um so yeah so the uh the culture that made nazi death camps possible uh was not only indigenous to the west but was an outcome of its fundamental religious traditions that insist upon a dichotomous division of mankind into the elect and reprobate richard rubenson uh, the cunning history 1978 Um and yeah so like this this is what I, what I wanted to do um obviously taken the from these quotes is kind of lay out that obviously like the time going from um 1400s up to now how the opinions are the same uh colonization is civilization uh if we the superior race take the lands of other races we must utterly destroy the previous inhabitants the disappearance of our local Indians is of little consequence. This was said by Sir Edward Bulwer Lyton, who was a co-founder of British Columbia and the member of the Legislative Assembly back in 1868. And oh, this was rough. John McLean, uh, he was from the Hudson's, Hudson's Bay Company, uh, Hudson Bay Company trader and land speculator. If you've ever seen Frontier on Netflix, absolutely class. That's about the Hudson Bay Company and um, their. How they came, obviously, the British um, importing fur, well, exporting fur from Canada. Uh, they'd gone over to Canada, and it's all about their relationship with the Indians at the time. Jason Momo was in it. It's pretty class, to be fair. Well, check it out, it's on Netflix. Um, so, yeah, John McLean said, uh, I just got a blanket well infected with smallpox and put it between my saddle blanket and a sweat pad. Uh, I went into all their villages with it and I succeeded. All of the savages died of smallpox. That was in 1908. It's not even that, do you know, it's not that long ago. Like, 1908 is like, what, three or four people ago? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not that long at all. Like, what, we're in two, like, 2021 now. 113 years ago. There are people alive that are 113 years old. Do you know what I mean? Like, that is fucking insane um i believe the conditions are being deliberately created in our indian schools to spread infectious disease uh the the death rate often exceeds 50 percent. this is a national crime this is from dr peter bryce you'll hear more about him later um so i'm going to jump straight into into the thing so um the canadian government and churches like all parties caught in their own crime have relied on the loophole provision Uh, inserted into section two of the united nations genocide convention that states that genocide is intent to commit the crime and not the crime itself it's what i mean about how um what i was saying before about how it's been the idea of what genocide is has been changed Uh, this loophole allows regimes guilty of genocide to evade prosecution canada included since it is nearly impossible to uncover a specific intent behind an array of historical actions by a state power Fortunately, as early as the publishing of Raphael Lemkin's seminal work on genocide, in which the term was first coined, um, that's the Axis rule in in occupied Europe, the book I was talking about before, um, it has been recognised that the normal legal criteria pertaining to criminal acts by individuals do not apply to such acts that emerge from group crime, as in the case of a genocidal regime and culture. In particular, the normal common law judicial requirement of proving both an act and a preceding intent to commit the act does not apply when entire groups of people are engaged in systematic and habitual crime against another group. Accordingly, Raphael Lemkin's original definition of genocide made no mention of intentionality regarding this crime. For him, intent was not a factor. Genocide meant simply an action, the destruction of a group, and that acts of destruction by itself demonstrated and implied the intent to commit the crime simply because so many people engaged in it so consistently and with an obvious murderous result Uh, ironically such a clear and uncompromising understanding of group crime indicted not only the nazis after the war but also those western powers that committed genocide against their own indigenous peoples including the governments and churches of canada and the usa This was recognised by the future Prime Minister, Lester Pearson, who stated in 1952 if the original draft definition of genocide introduced into the UN General Assembly, have had, had have remained, we in Canada would have had to close every Indian school in our country. And since that is was an impossibility, the Genocide Convention had to be modified. That was a report to the House of Commons on uh, August 12th, 1952. The Prime Minister Lester Pearson uh, was Prime Minister of Canada, um, not, uh, not England. So it's their House of Commons. But uh, yeah, so both the Canadian and American governments worked hard to revise Lemkin's original definition to protect themselves prosecution for their own homegrown War crimes. The main way they inco- they accomplished this was by inserting the following phrase into the draft definition of genocide: "Genocide means the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, any national, ethnic, racial, or religious group." In short, genocide was retranslated to mean not an action but an intention. So, a position as absurd and legally insupportable as to comp- as to claim that when a man kills someone and then robs them, the crime wasn't the fact that he killed the person; it's whether or not he actually intended to. And anyone who wants to say, yeah, but there's manslaughter, the idea would be is that they would be charged for the robbery, not charged for the killing. So uh, that's what their reference is to there. Uh, This self-serving redefinition was adopted in the final United Nations Convention on the Crime of Genocide 1948. Ever since then, governments and churches implicated in genocide have heavily relied on the intent loophole as a safeguard against their own prosecution, especially in North America. Suddenly, the act of genocide itself was not necessarily a crime and not one that could be prosecuted unless it could be proven beyond any doubt that the intent to commit these acts was also present. (laughs) It's mental, isn't it? Like, literally, it's just like, oh, shit. No, no, guys, guys, we fucked up here. Change that for us. Change that for us. We'll sort it out. Like, what the fuck? Um, So... Let's go into how all this works, how the actual system kind of came about for these Indian residential schools and um, where the ideas all all birth from. So this is where I'm talking about how it's all so stuck in tradition and stuck in history, how uh, these things kind of come about. So um, as with the concept and application of genocide itself, the Indian residential school system has been so falsely framed and misunderstood that we must return to the source of what that arrangement was, including its foundational purpose. The idea goes back to late Roman Empire and its Byzantine counterpart which was to conquer an enemy by kidnapping and re-educating their children to destroy their former nation as the programmed mercenaries of the conquering power it's such a powerful thought process in the way that instead of wiping out the the people who are military age people who, who will fight the people who will think for themselves if you can separate their children from them, and we've we've all heard of Stockholm syndrome. Eventually, people will bond with the, with their kidnappers or with their rulers. And when people are beaten down enough, fight or flight can go one way. If you've got nowhere to flight, you either join up or you die. It's it's pretty much as simple as that. Like you can see it all in in prisons. The new inmates. There's no point trying to convert and convert an old inmate because he's already been in there. He knows the deal like the new inmates that come in. They don't. They're fresh. They're new. Get into their heads. Tell them what you want them to know, what you want them to think. And then, boom, that's it. You've got a soldier for life. So. um, So the surviving young ones among the enemy would be saved and assimilated into the empire uh, and used to infiltrate and annihilate the rest in a form of selective redemption. Uh, The system always worked since it struck unexpectedly at the Achilles heel in the vital vulnerable center of any culture, which is its next generation. Uh, With the incorporation of the Roman Imperium into the Roman Catholic Church, this practice of selective redemption became a religious dogma and an institutionalized part of the foreign policy of the Vatican and every European nation. Since non-Catholics anywhere in the world were deemed to have no souls, remember that, remember that, uh, or rights of any kind they had to be conquered and destroyed for their own good But these non people could avoid slaughter and acquire a limited slave status by being baptized In this way the conquest of the world uh, By the Catholic Imperium could proceed on both an efficient and morally legitimate basis Especially since the papal doctrine of indulgence holy warriors killing on behalf of Rome that were spiritually cleansed into a state of original grace so um, in a nutshell, uh, the idea of them bringing those those people forward, and in with them, they they are then given a state of a normal person by wiping out their own people. I'm I'm, I'm guessing that states. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what that that that's saying. Um, in response to the Protestant Reformation, the Jesuit Order was established in 19 uh, yeah, 19 what 1543 as a secret military order to crush all opposition to the Pope vatican assassins this was a mad conspiracy that i came across uh ages ago uh i was very young speaking to one of my cousins um because we're part italian as well speaking to one of my cousins and um he made a joke about uh vatican assassins and i just thought it was just like a bad not bad translation as such but um obviously i wasn't too great at italian he wasn't too great at english we're speaking over msn and i was assuming it was just like a translation of um you know like in the da vinci code they've got that albino geezer that goes around fucking people basically and as i've come back into it and gone down this da vinci code like rabbit hole these uh the jesuits have some serious fucked up shit that that's like they've got to answer for in their history like it's crazy the um it's obviously the uh what's it called, like, pushing down any form of science, any form of anything else, like, it goes, it went into the same thing as this whole idea of them being non-people. So anyone that had any idea of anything else that went against what the Vatican crime family wanted to do. And this also is not an attack on religion. I am, once again, being Italian and Nigerian, like, uh, both sides of my family are Catholic. And your, your average Catholic priest they're not all bad they're not all bad we all know the stories though so um and when you see this when it goes back this far and you see the whole idea of the non-people and the people that are they acquire a slave status all it takes is one person to then go all right cool because of slave status, we can do whatever the fuck we want and that's basically what they've been doing for hundreds of years i'm not saying it's the whole church but the jesuit order seems to be very 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 tight knit in a lot of that sort of stuff but i'll talk about that later in my crazy da Vinci code shit. um it refined this system of conquest through salvation by creating a model for sabotaging an enemy culture from within the jesuits did so through the classic divide and conquer method of winning over a few leaders and provoking uh intern uh? Yeah, and provoking, well, yeah, inter-tribal warfare, basically, like they did in Canada among the Hurons by arming Catholic chiefs with muskets and smallpox blankets to wipe out their pagan rivers. Uh Key to the success of this strategy was the re-education of the children of those converted chiefs in special Jesuit-run schools from where the next generation of brainwashed Holy Papal warriors could complete the destruction of their former nation. Oh yes, yeah, so I was right. Yes, yeah, sweet. So <laughs> uh, the Jesuit weapon was often used successfully on any monarch or, or government government uh, that opposed or dissented from papal rule. Fast forward to mid nineteenth century on Canada's west coast, still largely unsettled by, uh, by Europeans, and the story of a Jesuit priest named Paul Duro. Well, I wanted to do it on camera, so like I didn't have to edit as much, but. When you stir like I just did. <laughs> That's the reason for the cut there. But yeah, so topic on uh, the de- Jesuits, obviously their whole method of divide and conquer, running into that and how their whole plan is to win over a few of the leaders. Um, one of the things that was used that in some of the stuff that I was reading about, obviously how they were fucking around with the uh, with people, anybody who believes in science or anybody who was underground in what then eventually became what was to the term that which has been used as the Illuminati, so the enlightened ones? It's not that we'll touch on we'll touch on that later. But the um, the uh, so the whole process of what they were doing is infiltrating these um, these underground groups of scientists, and either framing or blackmailing a lot of these scientists to then reveal information to the Vatican assassins, who are then finding them again on their next meetings and executing all of them. So. This then obviously led further to what was what was known then as the Illuminati, the Enlightened Ones, going more into a secret society. So um, I think what's then happened now is obviously we've blurred the name Illuminati with so many different secret societies, just because that was a very early one in recent history. I think that is why the, why we use that term. Um, when you look into further into what they are, then you find out obviously there is there's a lot of different parts of parcels to what the Illuminati is. But then at the end of the day. This, this podcast isn't about it. So um, yeah, so yeah, but but that's just a bit of a, a bit of info about obviously what they did there and how we, when we look into what's going on now, you talk about the Jeffrey Epstein case and stuff like that. The same methods could potentially be being used to frame people uh, in order to make sure that you have a form of power and form of control. And we do not need to look very far to see. How intertwined they? Um, Epstein, Maxwell, um, fucking Wexler—all of them dirty cunts were with, obviously, other horrible people in power. So, um, so yes, yeah, the key to the success of the strategy. Already read that. <laughs> So yeah, Paul Duro, that's what we're talking about. So yeah, so Paul Duro, uh, in his work among the coastal Salish Indians, uh, Duro came up with the prototype for what would become the Indian residential school system in Canada. Using the methods we discussed discussed before, Duro targeted youths and relocated them into church-run camps. Whereas watchmen, they would spy on one another and punish any backsliding heathens in their ranks, further spreading distrust among the community divide and conquer separate them so that they fear each other that way if you're in a uh, if you're in a situation where you're outnumbered then you can rely on the fact that they're all worried about whether or not one of them is gonna screw each other over if they try planning a coup in 1868, Duro wrote to his superiors in Montreal, it is remarkable how soon our young acolytes have learned to root out heresy and impiety within their own families and discipline the recalcit- recalcitrant person committing the crime. The same year witnessed the first major smallpox outbreak among the traditional Indians in the Lower Fraser River region where Duro worked. A plague assisted by the Church of England missionary John Sheepshanks during 1864 when he infected the Chilcotin Indians with smallpox using inoculations, depopulating over 90% of them. Jesus Christ. Soon, DeRoe's bosses adopted his work as the basis for the first Catholic Indian residential schools, which institutionalized DeRoe's method of pitting off children against each other uh, to weed out and destroy the heathens. By 1889, the system spawned similar efforts by Protestant ministries, uh, missionaries, sorry, and eventually the government of Canada itself, which formally sanctioned the duro like watchman camps that would eventually be called Indian residential schools. Significantly, over one half of the children began dying in these schools the very first year they were opened, especially in areas like the priories where the traditional indigenous identity remained strong. For example, in the Fort Capel Catholic Indian School, that opened in 1896 seven of the 13 seven of the 13 students were either dead or dying after one year in another school in regina eight out of the 12 died in comparison the average mortality rate in surrounding priory indian reservations in the same period was barely five percent i'm gonna have the figure you guys will all see um you'll be able to see it now i'm just talking because obviously i haven't done any editing yet but um, yeah, you'll have all the evidence in the little bits there so you can have a look for yourself, all the bits of um, evidence out to, to back up what we're saying here. Um, the, the, these facts suggest that, in keeping with papal ideology, uh, ideology killing off non Christian, unassimilable Indians was an accepted part and parcel of the residential schools project. Remember that oh that stuff we're gonna touch on in the queen and on one um the instantly high death rate is a fact never mentioned in official historical accounts like the government's trc report uh, since it would show a genocidal intent behind the program which contradicts the narrative that the system was a basically just a benevolent effort gone wrong in the same way the fact that this mortality level stayed constant for over half a century between at least 1889 and 1949 without any action to reduce it by either church or state would show that Indian residential schools were a deliberate killing machine from their inception. And that is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. Like that it makes you think that Ian Fleming quote, uh once this happens, dance. twice a coincidence, three times the enemy action. Like that was like how what, so sixty years? Sixty years of that death rate and nothing was done to change it. Even if they want to try and cover up their own tracks, you know what I mean? Like just fucking stop killing like stop at least save at least five i don't know like do something to change the fucking death rate um by 1909 uh, nearly half of the children in indian schools were dying from deliberately introduced diseases like tuberculosis according to dia medical inspector dr pete bryce who we met earlier uh, who had conducted an exhaustive study of health conditions in the school You'll see the pictures popping up now. Um, the mortality rate stayed the same at the same level for decades thereafter because of a routine practice by staff of infecting healthy children through forced contact with children dying of tuberculosis and then denying them care. Uh, this practice was done by all of the churches that ran the schools according to Bryce. Uh, between 1907 and 1909, Dr. Bryce made two separate tours of nearly every Indian school in the West. Bryce continually found that school staff and their church bosses were routinely concealing the enormous numbers of deaths among children caused by their disease spreading practices. He also documented how children consistently died at a much higher rate after entering residential schools and that no effort was made to separate healthy children from the infected ones. Bryce did not mince his words. I believe the conditions are being deliberately created in our Indian schools to inf- spread infectious disease. The death rate often exceeds 50%. This is a national crime. Indian agent uh, A.W. Neal of the West Coast Agency wrote to Indian Affairs less than a year after Bryce's final report, describing conditions in Vancouver Island residential schools. These people have lived for centuries in the open air. A child is taken into a school at eight, spends 10 years in the school. After that, its constitution is so weakened that it has no vitality to withstand disease. Uh, That is from April 25th, uh, 1910. A letter sent to Duncan Campbell Scott. He's a dick. Uh, I think he was the chairman of the Indian Affairs people. Um, Dr. Bryce was a big beef with him. So both Bryce and Neil were ignored by the government. The uh, good doctor being dismissed and blacklisted for, uh, for his report, which called, among other things, for the churches to be removed from operating the residential schools because of their manslaughter of the children. In fact, after firing Dr. Bryce and burying his report, Indian Affairs responded to his expose by actually institutionalizing church control over Indian children and making it a government-run project, making it mandatory for every Indian child to be incarcerated in these schools and taking many of the steps to increase the death rate. So these new measures since they went, when they went into government, I'll be going through them now. So we've got one, uh, the government signing of formal contracts with the Catholic, Anglican, Methodist and Presbyterian churches, giving them full operations of Indian schools in November 1910. In January 1911, uh, the government stopped publishing any follow-up reports on the health and death rate of children after leaving the schools. Between 1914 to 1918, obviously World War One, wartime emergency powers granted to residential school principals the power to impress children of any age into labor battalions, and ship them as unpaid workers anywhere in Canada to do heavy manual labor. This is children of any age. That is ridiculous. And um, March eleventh, nineteen nineteen, despite soaring death rates in the schools, uh, an order in council abolishes all medical inspection therein. Got the thing there. Uh, April nineteen twenty an act of parliament makes it mandatory for every indian child seven or older to be interned for uh, in, a, in a residential school on pain of fines or imprisonment spring 1926 uh, the governments in alberta and british columbia where nearly half of the schools were concentrated passed laws denying indians the right to appear in court to file petitions or to even hire a lawyer Nin- uh, december 1929 the federal government relinquishes its role, uh, traditional role, and makes the churches and residential school principal the legal guardian of all children therein. Disgusting. 1929 to 1933, Alberta and British Columbia governments passed sexual sterilization laws, allowing any Indian school inmate to be involuntarily sterilized at the whim of the principal. You're telling me this isn't genocide? The Canadian government demographics show a uh, demographic records show that. During the two decades after the residential schools were first launched and after these special measures were adopted, the net populations of Indians across Canada actually declined by over 20% from 1901 to 1911 and by almost 5% from 1931 to 1941. That's ridiculous. The residential schools not only targeted their imprisoned children for germ warfare and depopulation, but the surrounding native communities as well. Uh, using the schools and special Indian hospitals as breeding grounds for communicable communicable disease. Uh, For it was also a standard practice for children sick with tuberculosis or smallpox to be sent back to their homes to infect their families. It's almost like what's going on with the primary schools and COVID. (laughs) Uh, There's deliberate infecting of the healthy by the sick, never abated. 30 years later, a petition from Aboriginal parents reported that children at the Lejak Catholic School were not kept separate from the sick. Uh, Later, an Indian agent from the same area admitted that during any epidemic in the same Lejak school, uh, it is impossible to segregate the pupils. The earlier records from the residential schools show clearly that children sick with tuberculosis were being admitted to the school. This germ warfare carried on to modern times as Delmar Johnny uh, a survivor of the Catholic Cooper Islands residential school Relates from his experience as a boy there in 1961 He said uh, they made us sleep and play with all the kids who were sick with TB. They never tried to separate us. So even that guy um, That Indian agent that was obviously in the in the last bit like he's obviously one of the ones that has ended up turning into these papal Holy Warriors, he's just been brainwashed too long Um if we, were to, it, here's, here's a quote. if we were to operate these schools, we must accept the fact that uh, an inordinate number of Indian children will die within them, declared Deputy Superintendent Duncan Campbell Scott. Prick! In response to Dr. Rice's damning report of 1909. In this way, uh, the top civil servant in Indian affairs legitimated the death rate and even encouraged it by offering a shield of justification over the disease breeding schools. This same attitude was voiced by other Indian affairs officials. And we got some figures there for you so this is where it gets super dark right um going into the actual killing beyond the germ warfare and ugh. um looking at individual cases of murder in residential schools is like asking why fetuses are killed at an abortion clinic harriet nahani uh alberni school survivor 19 well 1998 february 9th She's one of the ones that died, isn't she? Uh, yeah, I remember, remember that name from before. Also, if I've butchered any of these names, I do apologise. Like I don't, um, I don't know anyone who's Native American, so I I don't know. I don't know too well how the how the names are pronounced. So if I've done any, if I've pronounced any of the names wrong, I do apologise. Anyone want to correct it? Feel free. Um, the average mortality rate in the schools vary between four different time periods. Being highest in the early years, 1889 to 1929, and lowest in the final years, 1975 to 1996. Ah. <laughs> the mortality rate averaging in each period was calculated as follows Period one, um, 1889 to 1929, 55%. 1929 to 1949, 39%. 1950 to 1975, 25%. 1975 to 1996, 10%. Imagine if... I went to school in the 90s. Like, Imagine if we had 10% of the children going to school dying in the 90s. Jesus Christ. The total average mortality rate over the entire period was therefore calculated to be 32.2%. Or almost exactly one-third of all students to ever enter an Indian Residential School between 1889 and 1996. Since the total number of attendees was likely about 200,000 students say one-third higher than the official count of 150,000 because a lot of them got buried, which is what we're going to go into later. A simple calculation of the total number of dead comes to 66,600 children over 107 years. Oh, that number's creepy. Or six hundred and fifty deaths per year, or 10 deaths per school every year. Uh, But even this figure is still a conservative one, considering that several school records show that far more than 10 children had died there in less than one year. The government's TRC claims... No more than 3,200 total deaths or less than 5% of the actual likely number. Defying both the archival report and simple logic, the TRC would have us believe that only 30 or so children died every year in the schools or one child every year in every third residential school for a mortality rate of barely 1.5%, even when the government's own records cite an average death rate of 30% to 50% for many decades. Just tripping over their own feet, it's disgusting. Uh, the prosecution need not to prove the individual culpability of the death camp guards or of the high state official when the system itself was geared to mass destruction. Any single individual serving such a system is assumed to be complicit and guilty by the fact of his association with it. Exactly, because end of the day, look how we think of Nazis. Like anybody who justifies Nazi, the Nazis' behavior is uh, it's, it's quite is questionable because you got to think about it. Even though they were brainwashed to do it, you didn't have to. I know it's obviously at risk of death, risk of your family, and risk of all sorts, but once you've done it, you've still done it. You can't use that excuse of, yeah, but they told me to. You still fucking did it. So it, you, you don't get let off there. You don't get let off there. at all. At all. Beyond the germ warfare. This is where it gets real dark. Um... Individual killings of children by staff, clergy and other students were routine occurrences in the schools. According to many eyewitnesses who saw the murders happen or dug the graves of the victims. They literally had kids digging graves with their fucking classmates. Homicide reports even turn up in the heavily censored official school records, invariably accompanied by a routine vindication of the accused and the refusal by local police to investigate further beatings, gang rapes, forced confinement without food, disciplinary tortures like electric shock, exposure to tuberculosis, and even formal executions were the usual homicidal methods of school staff and clergy who are literally beyond the law and protected by the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and Indian agents. The first eyewitnesses to the killing of residential school uh, child, first eyewitnesses, the first eyewitness, that's it, to the killing of a residential school child that went public on december eighteenth, 1995 at a public protest organized by kevin annette holds like kevin um at united church's office in vancouver so that's harriet i think uh harriet nahani uh, was a 10 year old at the united school uh, united church school uh in port albany when on christmas eve 1946 she saw principal alfred caldwell kick a student Maisie shaw to her death so this is from harriet um i was at the bottom of the stairs in the basement I always went to the bottom of the stairs to sit and cry. I heard her crying, she was looking for her mother. I heard Caldwell yelling at the, at the supervisor for letting the child run around on the stairwell. I heard him kick her and she fell down the stairs. I went to look, her eyes were open, she wasn't moving. They didn't even come down the stairs. I never saw her again. This first report was immediately shrouded in cover-up and official denial by police and church alike who both claimed Maisie was hit by a train which is what Coldwell told her parents. But in January, 1996, Kevin Annette recovered a a provincial death certificate from Maisie Shaw that states that she died of acute rheumatic pericarditis, which is heart failure. Um, But further examination revealed that this certificate had only been entered into the provincial archives the month before, shortly after Harriet Nahally's account appeared in the Sun newspaper. That is terrible. Just made up, just literally, just made up the death certificate to be like, oh yeah, no, 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 don't worry about that. In a telephone conversation, and when asked about this anomaly, Brian Young of the provincial coroner's office stated uh, that there was no death certificate for a Maisie Shaw before last month. Um, Kevin Annette asked him, "Is that normal to see no death certificate?" To which he replied, "With Indians, it is probably meant that she was just shoved in the ground somewhere." Um. Oh God there's no record for amazie shaw at the port alberni funeral home uh the certificate claims buried, uh, at the port alberni funeral home that the certificate claims buried her uh the fact that the coroner's report was issued the day after she died is bizarre and unusual uh that never happens according to louise the director of the same funeral home a second murder by that same dickhead alfred caldwell uh was reported just one week after harriet's story went public by another eyewitness archie frank a former inmate at the United uh, Church School in Ahusat. Uh, Archie told some reporters that he saw Caldwell, Caldwell beat a boy named Albert Gray senseless for taking a prune out of a jar. Albert died the next day and was buried in secret He got strapped to death uh, just for stealing one prune. Caldwell strapped him to death, beat the shit right out of him. The day after he got strapped so badly he couldn't get out of bed. The strap wore through, uh, through a half inch of his skin his kidneys gave out. He couldn't hold his water anymore. They wouldn't bring him to a doctor. I don't think they wanted to reveal the extent of his injuries. The Vancouver Sun um, spoke to uh, spoke to him in uh, on December twentieth, nineteen ninety-five. So that would be in the article there by Mark Hume, uh, beaten to death by the th- beaten to death for theft of a prune. After Albert died, Archie and another boy named stanley sam were ordered by principal caldwell to bury him in the woods behind the school two days before he was to be video interviewed by kevin annette archie frank died of undisclosed causes in january of 2000 the same week that another key witness died willie sport who was also scheduled for an interview with annette now william coombs as well the one that um when i was reading out the of the fallen the fallen warriors of this movement um William Coons was given a lethal injection. I'm going to have to go that into that in the next one. I really want to talk about it because that one's just such an outright madness. But uh, that's got to have to be a part two. Sorry, guys. Um, uh, <laughs> another former inmate at the United Church School of Port Albany, Harry Wilson, went public in 1997. He described an affidavit. How? Uh, described in an affidavit. How when he was 14, he stumbled across the body of a dead girl on the grounds of the school and what happened to him when he reported it. So this is him. In 1967, I discovered a dead body behind the Caldwell Hall uh, at the school. Uh, Two kids from the Cheshire Reserve, I hope I said that right, and and me found a young girl. uh, She was about 16, lying dead, completely naked and covered in blood. There was blood everywhere. I ran and told Principal Andrews, and he said he was calling the RCMP, but I never saw them show up. And the girl's body disappeared. Less than two months later, after I told Andrews about finding her body, I was shipped out to Nanaimo, Nanaimo, and put in the hospital there for three months. I was expelled from the school in 1970. I was sent to the Bella Bella Hospital. Then the Mounties had me committed, and I was strapped down in bed. I was in there for like, like that. For, I was in there like that for months. September 17th, 1997, Harry's story gets even more interesting. uh, Recruited by human rights investigators from the UN group IHRAAM to speak at a public forum in Port Albany the following year. Harry was approached by two Aboriginal officers of the state-funded New Chattanooga Tribal Council, Ron Hamilton and Charlie Thompson. In a signed statement of March 31st, 1998, Harry describes just before um, i was to talk about the girl i found ron Hamilton comes up to me and says i wouldn't talk about her if i was you if you say anything about it you'll be sorry as new channel tribal council official charlie thompson left our circle he walked by me and said to me harry you have half a brain and no one will miss you if you're found floating face down in the water naturally harry didn't say a word at the forum and later turned up dead on a vancouver street Harry Wilson's death received the same attention as had the young girl whose body he found when he was 11. Harry's friend Dennis Talio, another Alberni schoolmate, school inmate, also found a dead body on the grounds of the same establishment in 1965. According to Dennis, we even found a dead body. Uh, oh, according to Dennis, we even found a dead body at the school. Uh, it was in the fall of 1965. we were playing soccer in the backfield behind the school, where it was really covered in weeds. In those weeds, I came across the remains of a body, maybe three feet long. It was decomposed and you could see a lot of skeleton. I ran to the school and then we had to call the RCMP. After the RCMP came to us and told us not to say anything about what we had discovered in the field, I thought this was strange. Why would they want us to keep quiet? The forested hills behind the Alberni Residential School hold many of the graves of the dead children, according to Harry, uh, Dennis and other witnesses. In April 2008... uh, Forensic specialist and his team conducted a survey of the suspected mass burial site in these hills identified by survivors His survey confirmed what they had reported the land has all the classic signs of multiple burials the Telltale vegetation and the presence of regular sinkholes and undulating and the undulating terrain It covers more than 100 square meters that kind of disturbance means that a lot of digging has gone on there I've examined mass graves in Kosovo and Bosnia and what I saw behind the Albanese score bears all the same features. And that's from Dennis Ball to Kevin Annette uh, in April 3rd, 2008. Uh, And there's a survey map as well that I'll be able to put up. It's got all the um, sinkholes circled on there. So. Fucking hell, man. Uh, It's rough because... When you do all the research and you dig, in, you dig in, you dig in, you dig in, you can separate yourself from it. But then obviously when you're like 50 minutes talking about it, it gets to you. Mm. Kevin Annette released to the world media a list of 28 suspected mass graves near former Indian residential schools across Canada. Not a single Canadian media outlet responded to the release, nor did the police. Another suspected mass grave in British Columbia is on the grounds of the former Catholic Kamloops Indian School, one of the special treatment centres where children who uh, ran away more than once tended to be concentrated for particular discipline and punishment. William Coombs, once again, who was incarcerated at the Kamloops facility from 1962 and 1964, saw a priest bury a child there one night in the orchard south of the main building. Uh, He said, my friend Jesse Jules and me, Jesse Jules as well, saying, do you know what? I know that name. Um, I think when I originally found this, I think he got killed as well. I will double check that uh, just before we finish and just so I can obviously add that in. Um, But yeah, so he said, uh, my friend Jesse Jules and me were out scavenging for foods for all um, the little ones since they never fed us regular. Uh, It was night and we could see from the moonlight that Brother Murphy was dragging this bag out into the orchard. We watched and he turned it over, and the small little body fell out, and he kicked it into the hole with one boot. Then he started throwing the dirt in. East of Kamloops in in Cranbrook, British Columbia, stood the Catholic Saint Eugene Indian School. Before she died suddenly in early 2004, after confronting the local Catholic church over the missing children there, survivor Virginia Virginia Baptiste described the reign of terror and the local mass grave. We called St Eugene's Boot Hill because so many kids were dying there from disease. Every second or third kid. I saw a nun lock up a little girl in a closet and she just left her in there to starve to death. They all ended up in that big grave, not far from the school. After we started our protest and made a big stink, guess what? The feds came in and spent a million bucks covering the graves with a new golf course. The chief was in on the deal. Everybody knew what was in that ground, but now everyone wants to forget. Fucking hell! It's so crazy. It's so crazy, and this honestly isn't. It's not long ago at all. Like it's this is. These guys are still presently fighting to have, the, the people the people punished, and obviously that you're gonna be in a situation where half of them are fucking dead, like. These cunts have managed to go to their graves and not be executed after doing this to all these children. And it's outrageous, it's absolutely outrageous. So yeah, so uh, honestly, end of the day, I've only done a small part of this document. Um, I'm gonna put the link in in the description. Please check it out, download it, L- look up Kevin, uh, Kevin and Nett, look up the stuff that they do. And it's, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. Like I'm actually lost for words. Everyone that knows me knows I like to fucking talk <laughs> and I'm struggling. Like ah, fucking hell. What can you do? But yeah. So there you go. That's part one. Indian residential schools. That was a rough one. Jesus. Um so yeah, but this is this is the one that like I, I had to do had to set had to set the scene to be able to go into the next one, because otherwise I'm just going to be looked at like, oh, yeah, she's talking shit about the Queen. Um, so, yeah, so what we're going to do is, um, I'm probably just going to film it now to get it over with, because, yeah, the Wolf of Reserve's out now, so I may as well. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're going to get onto the Queen one, Queen and Nun and we're going to look into well, this is what facilitated it, but uh, we're going to look into if there is any truth behind the ac- accusations and we're going to see uh, who the people are that have spoke about the situation, William Coombs, and uh, we're going to look into uh, a, a bit more about the connections between the monarchy and um, those cult-like aspects of that dark side of the Catholic Church that has allowed the systematic murder of non-christians for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years so um so yeah me marco gambino here we go question everything let's question some more later on and uh yeah check out part two thanks for joining me guys and peace out